0: Welcome to this EMG Health Podcast. In this podcast, we are exploring prenatal screening and ask the question, how can we bring prenatal screening to the 21st century? If we were to design prenatal screening from scratch today, using all the modern tools available to medical scientists, how would we do it? How might we get the most out of prenatal screening while maximising benefits and minimising risks using new technology? Additionally, should we be expanding the conditions that are screened for to include single gene disorders and carrier screening? Joining me for this discussion is Dr. Samantha Leonard, International Senior Medical Director for Natera. She joined Natera six years ago following a career in clinical practice and has a background in genetics and bioethics. She is in an excellent place to discuss this fascinating and sometimes ethically challenging topic. This podcast has been funded by Natera. The tests described have been developed and performance characteristics determined by the CLIA-certified laboratory performing the test. The tests have not been cleared or approved by the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Although FDA is exercising enforcement discretion of pre-market review and other FDA legal requirements for laboratory-developed tests in the US, certification of the laboratory is required under CLIA to ensure the quality and validity of the tests. CAP accredited, ISO 13485 certified and CLIA certified. Dr Leonard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, glad to be here. Great, well listen, why don't we start at the beginning? I suppose, what's the main role of prenatal screening? And
1: traditionally, how has this been done? Today, the role of prenatal screening is to give people the option to access information that they can then use in making decisions about their reproductive pathway. And it isn't just about decisions around whether to continue a pregnancy, but about preparation for the parents and their families and the planning for the delivery and neonatal care and beyond. And early knowledge can help in optimizing care from the choice of the delivery center to having support services in place and to making sure that any appropriate medical checks are carried out and issues that are found can be addressed as early as possible. It's also important to acknowledge that early information can also be difficult for some people. And that's where pre-test counseling is so important to help support patients in having the information that they need to make a choice about what screening tests are right for them. Originally, though, prenatal screening was actually a way to assist in safe delivery and to help to avoid unnecessarily invasive interventions for babies with very little chance of survival. So to go back to the origins of prenatal detection of fetal conditions, the first reported prenatal diagnosis of a medical condition in a fetus was back in 1916 when anencephaly was diagnosed by x-ray at seven months of gestation. So x-rays were really the first tool that was used until, of course, the potential risks for the fetus were recognized and the approach was eventually stopped. Amniocentesis had been used for the diagnosis of hemolytic disease of the newborn, and it was recognized at that time that it would be possible to determine fetal sex in that way. But it wasn't until the 60s that it was discovered that amniotic fluid cells could be cultured and used for chromosome analysis, thus really opening the way for diagnosis of many more conditions. By the mid-70s, ultrasound had been started to be used to guide the needle in amniocentesis. And by the 1980s, two to three percent of pregnancies in the US and the UK were undergoing amniocentesis. It took until the mid-80s for CVS to be used for cytogenetic diagnosis. But these invasive techniques carry a small risk of miscarriage. And so a variety of strategies have been used to assess the likelihood of a genetic condition in the fetus and to try to assess which women have a higher chance of having an affected fetus and so might be more likely to benefit from, from an offer of an invasive test. So maternal age was originally used, and all women over a certain age were offered amniocentesis. But this was only capable of identifying around 27% of fetuses with trisomy 21. And it led to quite a lot of women having amniocentesis to find out that their baby didn't have one of the chromosome conditions that was being screened for. So maternal serum screening in its first iteration could detect around 35% of fetuses with trisomy 21. And that sensitivity improved over the years with more hormones being added. And then when nuchal translucency screening was added in, the sensitivity that could be achieved increased to around 80 to 95%. However, the challenge was the positive predictive value. So that's the likelihood that a positive or high chance result will be confirmed in the fetus and the positive predictive value for maternal serum screening is around three to four percent so that means that actually a lot of women are receiving a high chance result and potentially have an invasive test and find out that their fetus isn't affected with the condition. So more recently, non-invasive prenatal screening, or NIPT, has been introduced either as a second-line test after maternal serum screening has shown an increased chance of a condition, or in some countries it's offered as an alternative to serum screening. And this kind of screening is a bit different because rather than looking at hormones in the blood which serve as markers for potential chromosome conditions like serum screening does, NIPT actually looks at cell-free DNA. So I suppose that's
0: very important. We're looking at cell-free DNA. It's a serum test. Can you explain how these tests are carried out and is there only a small window when they can be done or is it pretty much open-ended?
1: So I think here it's helpful to think about screening in terms of tests for the parents and tests for the fetus as both are available but they can look for different conditions. So parents themselves can be carriers of certain genetic conditions but they often don't know that they are and carrier screening can inform a couple that they carry a condition, which could have implications for their baby if it's passed on to them. In fact, some carriers themselves can experience symptoms, but they might not be aware of the cause. So occasionally carrier screening can even lead to medical treatment for the carrier themselves and carrier screening can be carried out before a pregnancy. And this really gives the most options. So couples might decide to have a natural pregnancy and have prenatal diagnosis in the pregnancy or opt to have testing after delivery, or they may consider other options such as egg or sperm donation or adoption. And for some conditions, there may be the option of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So this is a procedure involving IVF where the embryos are tested for the condition before implantation. It's also possible to do carrier testing of the parents during a pregnancy. And if this shows that the parent or parents are carriers, there is the option of pre or postnatal diagnosis to see if the fetus themselves have the condition. The fetal tests include the standard types of combined screening, maternal serum screening that we were describing before, as well as non-invasive cell-free DNA testing, otherwise known as NIPT. And with NIPT, as well as looking for the common chromosome trisomies, it's also possible to look at smaller segments of chromosomes or microdeletions, as well as certain conditions that occur at the level of single genes. And NIPT can be carried out any time in pregnancy after the first nine or 10 weeks, depending on the specific test that you're using.
0: So you mentioned there microdeletions and single gene conditions. Can you expand on what these are in terms of fetal medicine? And why
1: have we not routinely been screening for them before now? Sure. So we can think of genetic conditions as occurring at different levels. So you can have the chromosomes themselves. You can have parts of the chromosome and the individual genes. And it can be helpful to think of this as if the chromosomes are volumes of an encyclopedia and the microdeletions are missing chapters, and the single genes are like sentences in the volume of the encyclopedia. And when we do traditional serum screening or NIPT for common trisomies, we're really just looking at the chromosomes, the whole volumes of our encyclopedias. But with NIPT, there is the possibility of looking down at the level of the chapters of the book. And even with some special types of NIPT, looking down at the level of the single genes that form, single letters rather, that form the genes. So we haven't really looked at these types of conditions through screening before. Really, because it hasn't been possible. So, in fact, even if you do an amniocentesis, the traditional genetic test that's carried out following that is a karyotype, which looks at the whole chromosomes or really big missing or extra pieces of chromosome. So, not usually down to the level of microdeletions and certainly not down to the level of single genes you can use special diagnostic tests in addition to the carrier type to look at microdeletions or single genes but until recently these have needed invasive testing and we couldn't screen for these with serum type screening but as mentioned many of the conditions that occur at the level of microdeletions or single genes are significant and can have major health implications for the baby Previously, you might have got some indication on ultrasound for some conditions, but many of these conditions don't have ultrasound signs or the signs could be non-specific. So in many cases, this kind of screening is the only way that you might have to be aware of an increased chance that a baby might have one of these conditions outside of the things that we were commonly screening for. And an interesting fact about the microdeletions is that, unlike the trisomies that we're used to, they actually don't increase in incidence with increasing maternal age. So this means that um, for younger women, they actually have a higher chance of having a baby who has a microdeletion than they do of having a baby who has a trisomy 21. So. It's something that is interesting to think about really um, for all women. And something to know about single gene disorders is that these are actually more common, some of them at least, are more common with increasing paternal age. So we're very used to thinking about maternal age when we talk about prenatal genetic screening. But now we need to start thinking about the age of the father as well as the age of the mother. So, this is really a bit of a change in the way that we think about prenatal screening. So, many of these microdeletions and single gene changes will occur for the first time during the development of the embryo, but some might be inherited from a parent who themselves may or may not have symptoms. And some microdeletions and some single gene conditions can be screened for by NIPT. But these smaller genetic changes are harder to detect using an IPT than the whole chromosome changes, as you might imagine, and they need special development to achieve. But advances in technology mean that now it is possible to screen for a greater range of conditions. So when we're thinking about the types of conditions that we might want to include in screening, some of the principles that we can take into account are how common is the condition? how well does the screening test perform, how well do we understand the condition that we're screening for, and what is the actionability of the information. So the 22Q11 microdeletion is an example of an additional condition that I feel has a number of arguments in favor of offering screening. And there are a number of other conditions that might be useful for people to know about prenatally.
0: I think that's it's really interesting i like your analogy of you know looking at the the volume of the encyclopedia the the chapters the pages the words and this how technology has allowed us to go deeper and deeper one of the conditions that you mentioned there is the 22q11 microdeletion so something that's sometimes referred to as diGeorge syndrome Traditionally, this is diagnosed shortly after birth, but for some, I suppose, it may not be diagnosed until maybe later in childhood or even into their teens. And it's believed to be very much underdiagnosed or mistaken for other conditions, delaying access to support. So Natura has recently started screening for this in their NIPT panel. So why was it that you felt it
1: was important to consider this condition in prenatal screening? So, 22Q11 is a microdeletion syndrome, and it's actually the most common human microdeletion. Previous studies have put the incidence at around 1 in 2,000 live births, and they usually occur for the first time, or what we call de novo, in the embryo, but around 10% are inherited. And it's a condition that can easily be missed on ultrasound as a significant proportion of pregnancies have no ultrasound features or may have non specific features. But we know that there are a number of medical issues that can be associated with 22Q, which can benefit from early intervention. So, babies with 22Q are at risk of cardiac malformations and we know that not all of those cardiac malformations are detected prenatally and some of those with 22q are a type of condition that we call duct dependent which can mean that the baby can seem well for a short period of time but then can deteriorate and so this is a situation where a baby might be sent home from hospital and then run into issues at home so if you know early on that a baby might have this condition, then they can have a cardiac um, ultrasound and really assess the heart before they leave the hospital. We know that babies with 22q are at risk of hypocalcemia, and that can lead to seizures. And both the hypocalcemia itself and the seizures have been associated with a worse neurodevelopmental prognosis. And so if you can identify the hypocalcemia very early on and treat it, then you could potentially improve the prognosis. It's also known that babies with 22Q may have some immune deficiencies. Many of these may be mild, but some of them can be more severe. And so, again, it's important to be aware of them as soon as possible. And even for the developmental delay and the psychiatric disorders that can sometimes occur with 22Q, there's starting to be evidence that early identification and intervention may help to improve the outcome. It is a variable condition, so some individuals will have all of the potential features and others may only have some or none of the features. But if the condition is recognized early, then all babies known to be at risk of this could be given early assessments to try to identify and to treat any medical issues. So this is a condition that has traditionally been identified clinically, either prenatally because there have been some cardiac signs on ultrasound scan or if medical problems develop after birth. But for some patients, this can take years and we hear stories sometimes of children who've seen multiple healthcare professionals before diagnosis has been made. And so this can lead to missed opportunities for early intervention with things like the, the heart issues that I described, but also with speech and language and other aspects of development. And again, traditionally, this is a condition that is then assessed with diagnostic tests, which involve using specialized techniques such as fish in which you attach colored probes to the chromosomes to check that there are two copies of the 22Q region of interest or by a technique called a microarray. And this will be able to see smaller deletions that can be missed by FISH testing. And prenatally, these would require doing an amniocentesis or a CVS. But as we were saying, certain microdeletions, such as the 22Q11 microdeletion, can now be screened for using NIPT. And the test that our laboratory developed, which is the Panorama test, is one of the NIPTs that's been validated to screen for this condition.
0: And you mentioned the panorama test.
1: How do these work and, and what other conditions can they look at? The first non-invasive prenatal tests worked by looking at the selfie material by which chromosome it belongs to, regardless of the maternal or placental origin. So they would look at all the fragments that belong to a chromosome of interest, like chromosome 21, and then comparing these to a reference chromosome to see if there were more fragments belonging to chromosome 21 than they would have expected. What's a bit different about the Panorama test is that it uses a different approach called the SNP approach. So SNPs are single nucleotide polymorphisms, and these are single letter changes in the DNA code that don't cause health problems in themselves, but they can allow us to tell the difference between one person's DNA profile and another. What that does, we all have hundreds of thousands of these. With this technique, we're looking at over 13,000 of these SNPs or these variations where we expect to see these variations on the chromosomes that we're interested in and that allows us to distinguish between maternal and placental and what we can do with this technique is to look at trisomies of chromosomes 21, 13 and 18 we can look at the sex chromosome trisomies and for monosomy x we can also assess for fetal sex as well as looking at some microdeletions for example the 22q11 syndrome that we mentioned as well as 1p36 deletion Prader-Willi, angelman and Credusha. and another thing that you can do with this technique is that you can identify triploidy which is three copies of every chromosome So with the original versions of NIPT, they were looking at a ratio between a reference chromosome and a chromosome of interest and looking to see if there was a difference which would be created by having three copies of that extra chromosome. But if you have three copies of every chromosome, then that relative difference will be lost. But using this SNP technique, it is possible to see when there's triploidy. Another thing that you can do with this technique is to see when there is additional chromosome material that you're not expecting to be present. So we know that one cause of um, discordant results with NIPT is the presence of a vanished twin. And again, if the NIPT test isn't able to distinguish between different DNA profiles, then it won't be able to tell that there's vanished twin material present. But with being able to see the different profiles, you can see when there's vanished twin material that may be affecting the test. Another thing that you can do with the technique is in twin pregnancies, you can assess to see whether these are identical or non-identical twins. So you can see the zygosity of the twin. And that is important, firstly, because we know that the chance of having trisomy 21 is actually different if the pregnancy is an identical twin pregnancy than if it's a non-identical or fraternal twin pregnancy. And so knowing the zygosity of the pregnancy helps us to assess the prior probability of trisomy 21. And it also helps us to measure the individual fetal fractions of the twins, Fetal fraction is the proportion of material in a pregnancy that is coming from the placenta rather than coming from the mother. And most tests have a requirement for a certain amount of fetal material to be present in order to give a result. But for twin pregnancies, we actually know that in a dizygotic twin pregnancy, each twin can contribute A different amount of DNA to the cell free DNA. And so, if you can't measure each fetal fraction, then you don't know if you've got enough DNA from each twin to assess. So, again, that's something that can be done with this technique that can help with the assessment. It's important to note that all NIPT is screening and not diagnostic. I mentioned placental DNA and DNA coming from the placental side, and that's because the cell-free DNA that we are assessing is coming from the placenta rather than directly from the fetus. Now, usually the placental chromosomes and the fetal chromosomes are the same, but occasionally there has been a change that's occurred after the cells that will become the placenta and the cells that become the fetus have started to go their separate ways. And that can lead to something that we call confined placental mosaicism. So that means that there can always be that possibility that the test can give one result and the fetus will have another result. So a high chance result does not definitely mean that the fetus is affected. Diagnostic testing would be needed to confirm that. And also, in the same way, a low-chance result does not mean that the fetus is definitely not affected. It just means that there is a very low chance that they will be affected. And it's important to acknowledge that not everybody will opt for diagnostic testing during pregnancy. And so it's something that can also be considered after birth. But having that information from screening means that the parent can plan, that plans can be put into place for delivery and post-delivery management. So the information in itself is important. So you covered there quite importantly
0: that these are, you know, they're screening tests, they're not diagnostic, but they are relatively new. So what is the accuracy and the reliability of using this technique to detect microdeletions?
1: So that's a really interesting question. And Some of the concerns related to using NIPT for microdeletions have been around lack of data because, until recently, the data on NIPT came really from using samples that were artificially created in order to test or they were from cohorts that had been enriched to increase the proportion of babies that would have 22Q11. The reason being that it's difficult to try to get a cohort big enough to get results in the general pregnancy population. So there was concern that that this hadn't been assessed in a general pregnancy population. And additionally, that this had a lower positive predictive value than people were used to seeing for trisomy 21, where the positive predictive value is typically above 90%. And with 22Q, the kind of positive predictive values that people had seen were more around 20%. So we recently did a large prospective study, which is Called the SMART study, um, the SNP-based microdeletion and aneuploidy registry study, using the Panorama test. And for this, we recruited over 20,000 women from 21 countries around the world. And what was really interesting and special about this study was that we were able to get genetic outcomes for all of the participants that went through the whole study. So in the end, that was over 18,000 women went through the whole study. And we had genetic outcomes, confirmatory testing, whether they received a low probability result with their NIPT or a high probability result. Now, when you're assessing NIPT, most studies will try to confirm high probability results, but they don't double check every single low probability result because there are thousands of those. So this is something that's challenging to do and it was really good to be able to do it because it means that we've now got an assessment of exactly how many of each condition there was to find in our cohort. We looked at a number of different things with this study. We looked at how the test performed for the trisomies 21 18 and 13 and we looked at how it performed we were particularly interested in how it performed for 22q11 microdeletion syndrome and then the other part of this study was to assess a new algorithm which used a new way of processing the data that incorporated artificial intelligence so then to analyze the data set using that algorithm to see how that might affect the results and in terms of 22q deletion we saw a number of interesting things so firstly we saw how many instances of 22q11 deletion there were in the cohort and there were around 1 in 1500 of the pregnancies in the cohort and we were able using the artificial intelligence version of the algorithm we were able to detect 83% of those 22q11 microdeletions And we were also able, with this updated technique, to reduce the number of false positives. So we were able to see an improvement in the positive predictive value to about 52%. So this really significantly improved the positive predictive value to bring it more in line with other conditions that we're routinely used to screening for, like trisomy 13 and monosomy X. We also we're able to look at the smaller deletions. So when the Panorama test was originally validated to look for 22Q11 deletions, it was validated for the most common deletion associated with 22Q11 syndrome, which is a two and a half to three megabase deletion. But we know that you can actually have smaller deletions within that region. And those deletions are called nested deletions. What we were able to do with the enhancement to the algorithm was to be able to detect some of these smaller nested deletions as well. So the 83% sensitivity was for all of the deletions of the common region or within the common region. We know that you can have deletions outside of the region, but those are much less common. And the nested deletions in themselves were more common than had been expected. It's traditionally been thought that around 15% of 22Q11 deletions are the smaller nested deletions, but we saw that it was above 40% in the cohort. So that was some new information that we didn't have before. So this really helped us firstly to see how this test performed for 22Q11 screening in a general pregnancy population, and it helped us to demonstrate that it was Possible to achieve a better positive predictive value, which is extremely important um, to try to reduce the number of false positive results. So, really helping to address those two concerns that I mentioned of data from a general pregnancy population and the positive predictive value.
0: Of course, it wasn't just twenty two q deletion that you were looking at in the Smart study. So, how did the rest of the tests in the Panorama panel perform?
1: Yeah, so we also looked at how the test performed for the common trisomies, and we found that the results were in line with the original clinical validation study, which showed high sensitivity and specificity across the common trisomies, which was good to be able to confirm, especially because, as I mentioned before, in a study of NIPT, you don't always have The total number of trisomies that there are to find in a cohort so you don't know for certain what your sensitivity is because you haven't gone and tested every single patient in the cohort to double check that you haven't missed something but in this case we had so we really knew how many trisomies were present to find we also analyzed the data using the artificial intelligence version of the algorithm and What the artificial intelligence version does is it helps us to give additional results in cases where it previously would have been difficult to call a result. So the important thing was to check whether it was possible to give additional results and to give additional results whilst maintaining the original performance of the test. So we were able to show that we could maintain the sensitivity and the specificity of the test but to be able to give additional results. And that's important because you you want to be able to keep your false negative rate low, but to be able to give as many results as possible. And so being able to really improve in how many cases you can give a result whilst maintaining the performance, then that's a really important thing to be able to do. And so what we were able to do was to show that the redraw rate, which with the original version of the algorithm had been 3.3%, with the artificial intelligence version of the algorithm, that had reduced to 1.46%. So we were able to give results to more patients. In addition, we are starting to get some information about patients' where they were not able to get a result even after two attempts to run the test. And what we saw in those cases, using the original version of the algorithm, if they'd had no results on two occasions, we saw that there was an increased incidence of adverse pregnancy outcomes. So that included things like non-live births for any reason, preterm births and preeclampsia. So this is preliminary data and it's still being assessed to better understand it, but it's really starting to give us some information about how test failures may be telling us more about the health of the placenta. So it's really interesting there, isn't it, to see that
0: not only are we getting from prenatal screening information that could pertain to the health of the fetus, but we're also potentially getting clues to the health of the pregnancy overall, which could also have other applications further down the line. I suppose speaking about further down the line, increasing genomics technology and and understanding is now allowing for this greater use of cell-free DNA in a variety of circumstances, not just prenatal genetic screening. But prenatal genetic screening has now developed rapidly in the last
1: decade. Where do you think the future is? So I think it's a really interesting time in cell-free DNA technology. Now we have increased computing power. We've got artificial intelligence that we can make use of. There's, of course, increasing understanding of genomics. We've got better techniques to analyze. And all of this is starting to help us to see all of the different ways in which we can harness this technology to really be able to give more clinical information to help to care for patients. And one of the interesting things about cell-free DNA is that it's now been possible to apply it to different areas. For example, in organ transplantation, we can actually use cell-free DNA This time, not to look for the DNA coming from the placenta, but actually to look for donor-derived DNA in a transplant patient. And if you're seeing additional donor-derived DNA from what you would expect, then that can be a sign that that organ's health is not so good. And so that can then lead to better management for patients. And another area where it's been applied has been looking for circulating tumor DNA so it's actually been possible to design a test that is personalized to the tumor of a patient that's had a cancer and monitoring that circulating tumor DNA so being able to detect tiny tiny tumor signatures present in a simple blood test from a patient then allows us to monitor how treatment is going is the patient responding to treatment or not and after they've had a surgery are we seeing that that circulating tumor dna has gone away and then after they've had their definitive treatment to try to detect early on is there any sign that that tumor might be coming back really means that this is a powerful technology that I'm sure there are many other areas to which it can be applied in the future. So it's an interesting time. And up until now, in terms of the prenatal genetic testing, we've been talking mostly about the chromosome conditions and the microdeletions. We have mentioned single genes a little bit with relation to carrier screening but it is actually possible to use an nipt testing approach to look for some of the single gene conditions and those have really been a whole segment of genetic condition that hasn't been routinely screened for these are conditions where there may be no family history because this is maybe something that's happening for the first time in that baby and for some of these, there are really no ultrasound findings or there may be very non-specific ultrasound findings. So this screening may be the only thing for some people that would give them information about an increased chance of this condition in the pregnancy. So some of the conditions that can be screened for in this way are things like Noonan syndrome and Rep syndrome, among others. And some of the advantages about early knowledge of those conditions are things like understanding later on in the pregnancy when there might be ultrasound findings, knowing what the cause of those might be. Also, after delivery, making sure that that baby has all of the right care in place really straight away from the first possible moment. So again, this is information that can be used for for planning, and then eventually for medical care. So I think that although in prenatal genetic screening, we have traditionally thought about the chromosome conditions, that's really been because that is what was possible to do technically and now that we can do we can look at other conditions if those are important conditions that are things that we can understand things where we can give performance of the test and particularly conditions where we may be able to impact medical care it's important to to consider those and to have a discussion around what kind of things should we be offering So it's important to mention here that with all of this new technology, we also have to think about not just adding more tests because we can, but because it gives valuable information. For example, it's possible to look at all chromosomes for trisomies, not just the standard three that are routinely screened for, and even to look for large deletions or duplications across all of the chromosomes. But it's important to also bear in mind that the more tests that we add, the greater the false positive rate can be. For example, with trisomies of chromosomes other than 13, 18, and 21, it's not very likely that a fetus with one of these would be viable and in fact the majority of these are just going to be in the placenta and not the fetus so looking for these could mean that the woman would be given results that might cause anxiety and then undergo invasive testing and this could be something that's just in the placenta. But it can be difficult to prove definitely that the condition is just confined to the placenta, even with diagnostic testing. So that anxiety can be difficult to resolve. So you could argue that this might be screening that is not so useful to be doing. So we always need to be considering whether adding a test will bring clinical benefit and weigh this against any potential issues that it could cause. And
0: I think that's quite important. You know, you have mentioned an awful lot about how prenatal screening allows for a multitude of decisions to be made. Be that about whether to continue a pregnancy or just decisions on a birthing plan and territory care that might be needed or future family planning and neonatal care. So what have your customers
1: said themselves in terms of what screening has meant to them? So I think some of the comments um, from patients that have struck me in particular have been in relation to a decision not to have screening and the reasons for that. So one woman described how she had decided not to have carrier screening because she had already decided that she was not going to have a termination. And I think that's possibly a common reason among people who decide not to have screening. But her child was born with a particular neurological screen, a condition that would have been in the screen. And she, when she had experienced it, she described how knowing before the baby was born would have given her time to prepare and to learn about the condition and to speak to doctors and patient support groups and to prepare her family and prepare her home. So she hadn't been aware that The information in itself would be valuable to her, not just in relation to an ability to make decisions about continuing a pregnancy. So screening is definitely a personal choice, but I think that it's something that should be discussed with all pregnant people so that they're aware of the information that can be available to them and what their options are, not just in terms of continuing a pregnancy, but in terms of the information itself so that they can consider whether that information would be valuable to them and and how Thanks
0: so much, Dr. Leonard, for this truly informative and fascinating discussion on the future of prenatal screening. We've definitely come a long way since x-rays in 1916. And it's fascinating that we can look deeper now at genes and past chromosomes to really spot if we have microdeletions or single gene problems. But as you were saying earlier, it's important to know what can parents do with the information that they're given. So it is about informing you about understanding maybe what additional support might be needed at birth and in the early years of the child's future. And as you were saying as well, just because we can test for some doesn't necessarily mean that we should if there's going to be a greater risk of having false positives there. It really is an exciting time for prenatal testing. For now, that's all we have time for in this episode. However, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our archive for more episodes just like this one. Also be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For now, take care, stay safe and goodbye.